because frankly, I think we have too much entertainment where we solve our problems by just simply blowing them up. And I think that's part of the problem we're having today is that people have decided that if I have a problem, I just go out and get a gun and the problem solved. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fandy Show. I'm Sean, and today we are joined by someone you already know for an interview about their new space opera novel, Loki's Ring, out now from Saga Press. Uh, and that person is Stina Light. Hi, Stina. Hi. Tis I, Stina. <laughs> <laughs> so Stina's been on this show before, and Stina is an author of many books, including the very first novel Stina released that we interviewed her for, which was Of Blood and Honey, but she has also written Cold Iron, Persephone Station, and a few others. But Stina's been at this for, your first book was 11, right? So 12 years? Did it come out in 2011? I feel like it was 2011, but it's been a while. Yeah, no, it, it was 2011. You're right. I, I have a different experience because I got my agent in 2009. The book was already like being finalized and, and such, but it took until 2011 for it to be published. That's correct. Yeah. So, so in terms of raw publishing in novels, your career began in 2011, but naturally your actual writing adventure began much sooner. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it began in like 2007 or 2006, probably because it took about five years for me to write of button honey it's a hard one to start with let me tell you you did not set it up easy for yourself no i did not i have a i have a nasty habit of taking on a lot more than normally any normal person should i just i like challenging myself you've done that with this one too yeah and i I will have some questions because I'm very curious about it. So before we get to the book, real quick, for folks at home, uh, if you would like to let us know what you think about this episode or any other ones, go to skiffingfanda.com slash listener suggestions. So if you've got questions or thoughts or whatever, please put them up. Um, we'd love to hear you. And if you've read Loki's Ring, tell me, because I want to know. Yay. Uh, so anyway, okay, so Stina, Loki's Ring. This uh-huh. is a book that you wrote and have published. What What is this book? What is this book about, huh? <sighs> Well, it's uh, it's about a lot of things. It doesn't, unlike unlike Persephone Station, it does not have a, a simplistic plot. Really, it's it's about family. It's about found family. It's about mothers and daughters. It's about how relationships aren't perfect, you know, and you you end up having fights and disagreements and. The way you last long term in any relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or a long term commitment among three or four people or whatever, um, the way these things work out is that you commit to working on the problems that you have with one another. You have arguments. Arguments have to be okay. It has to be okay, And mistakes have to be okay. Uh, because no human being is perfect. So 
a lot of this. I you, I love the found family thing. I love it a lot, but I rarely ever see instances of a found family where they hit a snag and things fall apart and then they have to put it all back together again. And I and I kind of wanted to do that with this. So there's that going on. Then there's also the alien ring world that's out there doing its own alien ring world thing. And so that's part of it. And then there's also the artificial general intelligences and uh, all the things that are going on with them and how they are people and they have human rights and they have a place in society. And there are a bunch of people who don't agree with that. And then they leave the Republic of Worlds so they can be out on their own, you know, humans first and all this stuff and how those two groups come into tension with one another. So that's, that's another thing that's going on. And I think that's everything. (laughs) Oh, wait, except for the virus. Yeah. 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 The alien virus thing. Yeah. Yeah, There's that. That's a little, little bit of a deal. Yeah. 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 Small thing. No, nothing really major happens with it. You know? Yeah. (laughs) I like the, I've, I've been thinking about tricking people into thinking that this book is really just about a bunch of people who go to an alien ring world to go to a cafe to have coffee. Uh-huh. Because of the number of times coffee is mentioned in this story. <laughs> I love coffee. I love coffee. Like, multiple characters good. have, like, a relationship to coffee that I was like, yeah, I feel like in the future we're also going to continue to have this. Because it's very like, ah, th- did you put the pot on? Yes, you did. Okie dokie. We're, we're good today. <laughs> I have ADHD, right? My relationship with caffeine is probably not like yours. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. It's, <laughs> it's what I self-medicated with until I got finally diagnosed. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what actually kept me going. So there's a personal element there. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably what came through. <laughs> that's amazing. Because I was thinking just idly about, like, often when we think of, you don't have empires per se, uh, or at least not like, empire is not a big question necessarily. But sometimes when we have big space operas, you you have these big entities like republics and empires, etc. And it's tea because they want to reference, you know, like the British British. acquisition of tea. But you've got coffee. And and I, I don't know why, but it felt like, it just felt very different, the tone. Like, tea, like, it's very proper, it's very imperial, but coffee is like, that is that is the everyday person's beverage and the way it comes across in this. That's hilarious. That probably comes from of Bud and Honey, I gotta say. <laughs> my, re- my research for that one. I'll just I'll just leave that there. You'll know, oh, okay. you'll know what that is. Yes. Yeah, go read that book. Yeah. So okay, so space opera. So you're you're writing a space opera. It's got alien stuff. It's got artificial general intelligences. It's got big spaceship stuff and things of that nature. Now in your career, since I have known you since your first novel, you have written everything from urban fantasy to like epic flintlock fantasy to now space opera, and and sort of punky space opera. A lot of that kind of stuff in there, right? And mm-hmm. I, I'm really curious as a, a as a writer. Do you kind of see yourself as a kind of like genre adventurer? Yeah, I like I like 
doing all sorts of things. I mean, I've kind of always wanted to write science fiction and I just didn't have the self-confidence to just start off with science fiction because I don't have a science degree and I don't have a background in any kind of science. And in my brain, I have it like pretty much hammered in there that in order to write about science fiction, you need to have some science in it. Hence the name. It's in the name. It's yeah. In the name, Sean. In the name. It took me a while to like ease my way into, into it. But uh, I do like being able to, I don't know. It's, it's like being an actress, right? Or an actor. There are actors that will always be themselves in whatever they're in. Like Sean Connery is always just Sean Connery, whatever he's in. Right. And then there's actors that can actually be different characters. And you don't actually recognize them until you realize, Oh wait, I've heard that voice before. Right. I've always wanted to be a Meryl Streep as opposed to <laughs> a John Wayne, right? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to be able to write different genres. I think it's very, I don't know. I, I just feel like you can be a, a virtuoso or you can just play the same song over and over again. And you want to be a virtuoso? Yeah, I want to I want to go for it, man. I want to try. I mean, who knows if I got it to do it, but at least I will have tried. You are on two books in the science fiction genre now, so I love it. I'm enjoying it and I'm going to write it as long as I can. But, you know, if they come to me one day and say, "Okay, we haven't sold enough copies of of whatever it is, um how about writing something else?" I will say yes. So Given that you kind of mentioned you didn't quite feel it seemed to me you were suggesting like when you kind of began thinking about doing this, or at least have always felt this to some degree, like there was like an element of confidence about feeling like you could do this. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment either with Persephone Station or this book or even before that where you were like, nah, I got this, like like a a button clicked or. Yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah. When. Persephone Station went out and it did as well as it did. That's when I was like, oh, I guess I can write science fiction. <laughs> that must have felt really good then because yeah, I yeah, remember yeah. the buzz about that book. And yeah, so I mean, it, it is really nice to watch like your career to have seen you jump from these different styles of, of genre and now mm-hmm. getting to do one of my favorites, which is space opera. So I'm a big, yeah. I'm a big space opera nut. And you did some fun stuff that I was like, oh, Stina, oh, you you clever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I love space opera. It's so much fun. Uh, so let's get to one of the cool things that you did. You did many okay. cool things, but I want to get okay. to one of them. Okay. I want to talk about artificial intelligence because there's lots of AI throughout science fiction, you know, computer programs that come to life, blah, blah, blah. There's the different variations of it. But I don't recall seeing a lot of attention brought on the issue you bring, which is that these are treated as sentient beings. Mm-hmm. They are beings with they're, they're literally sentient, but then they're also treated as beings as as uh, worthy of conferring rights to that. They need mm-hmm. to be treated as as actual beings rather than just computer programs. And so mm-hmm. I, I really thought that was fascinating that you presented this political culture in which that is a major political concern of uh, mm-hmm. whether or not you accept AIs as 
beings worthy of rights or whether you don't could affect where you line up on this political culture. And I'm curious about kind of how you were you were seeing yourself dividing that or designing that world uh, and that political culture and where that was kind of coming from for you. Well, here's the thing. I mean, when you think about it today, if you believe that gay people or human beings who have rights or women who are human beings who have rights or whatever marginalized group, right? That's how you stack on the political spectrum. That's how it works. So that's why I replicated it. Did you think that on some level, um, I know like science fiction gets this both on a critic, gets criticized for it, but also somewhat appreciated for it of the thing where like SF can take these social issues, but like we're doing it with things that don't exist. And so there's like uh-huh. a, like a, like a little barrier put in where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I forget that the real world is what this is really an analog to. Did you find yep. that that was part of what you were doing too? Well, yeah, in a way. I mean, I think a lot of what I was doing with it was definitely a commentary on the political situation right now, honestly, particularly in regards to libertarians. They drive me nuts. <laughs> but <laughs> because it's the most it's the most selfish. I mean, they are the vampires of the political system, honestly. Um, they don't contribute anything. They don't produce anything. They just take away from everybody. If you read the book, uh, Libertarian Walks Into a Bear is, is the title of the book. Illustrates it perfectly. <laughs> they they didn't want to support have they decided to have a, a libertarian town. And when they did their libertarian town, they did not want to pay taxes to the city at all. So the city didn't have a fire department. The city didn't have police. The city didn't have a library. The city didn't have anything. So it was just a collection of people living in a hovel praying that they would not have a house that burned down or a bear who would just walk into the house because there was nobody to help them that they didn't bring in from another city. So they ended up having to use resources from other cities because they didn't have them in their town. Right. So they are. That's why I call them the vampires, of the political system. They don't believe in civilization. They don't believe in contributing to civilization. They don't believe in contributing to the common wealth of everyone. So that's why they're always my bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) Selfish bastards. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me. (laughs) Well, I think that's really interesting because there's a a great deal of sort of political intrigue in this and, and complexity. Because mm-hmm. of the two sides that now exist, this this republic, which has its own council of, of sentient beings that kind of make a lot of determinations. And then the other side that's like, now that we're basically genocidal, you will not have any AI or anything. But they've also like gone off over there. And then occasionally they meet up and then it creates conflict because naturally they have very different views about what qualifies as a person and that creates many of the the major conflicts that occur in this book even when things shouldn't be a conflict at all uh you know when they should be like maybe we should just set this bullshit aside and deal with this more serious problem no no we mm-hmm. won't do that no and I, and I love your exploration of that i thought that was really interesting of trying to look at these two diametrically opposed groups trying to deal with each other and how they actually don't or do in, in certain respects. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of the way you were, you were playing that into the book in a book about 
to some degree, weird alien stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to, it's really easy to write a book, particularly a space opera, where you just blow shit up, right? Oh, I have a problem. I'm just going to blow it up. Boom. Right? So I wanted to write a book. I wanted to start writing stories about people who resolve their problems in other ways. Because frankly, I think we have too much entertainment where we solve our problems by just simply blowing them up. And I think that's part of the problem we're having today is that people have decided that if I have a problem, I just go out and get a gun and then problem solved. But that's not how problems work. You get a gun, you shoot someone and you have more problems is what happens. Wars cause more problems than they solve. And we need to, as humans, practice coming up with solutions to problems that don't involve guns. We need to work out how to argue with one another and how to resolve situations, not, not just come to compromises, actually resolve problems. And we need to work on resolving problems rather than pretending that they don't exist and just sweeping them up under a rug somewhere. Because I don't know if you're, you, there was a study done at MIT and they discovered that PTSD has a genetic element, they've discovered, that you can, yes, trauma inflicted upon one generation will go down into the next generation. So when you think about it that way, think about what happened with the Irish. Think about what happened with Black people. Think about all of the trauma that has been dropped on the Vietnamese, on all these different cultures, like all of the trauma that has happened to indigenous peoples, all of that is there. It's there forever. It doesn't go away. So we have to resolve this shit and we have to stop traumatizing one another. We need to start solving problems. So the only way you do that is by imagining what possible answers there might be, right? So that's why I want to write stories that resolve problems in other ways. And, you know, I realize I've written a lot of military science <laughs> and fantasy. And that's fun. I, I get it. I get it. Bang, bang, you're dead is fun. But you've got you've to grow up and you've got to do more and, and learn and stretch and grow. And that's what I want to do. I want to have a positive effect on the world. I want to leave behind a world that is better off from my having been in it. Right. Yeah. That's my goal. So that's, that's what I want to do. I want to help people imagine solutions to problems that don't involve violence. That's interesting. I was not expecting that answer because this makes me now think about positioning this particular work within some of the conversation happening in science fiction and fantasy currently, uh, which is about, I don't want to use the hope punk thing because I don't think that's specifically yet. It's more about the way in which we deal with conflict in stories and other mm -hmm. ways of telling stories in which mm -hmm. conflict is not necessarily, you know, big, massive, boom, boom conflict, but more subdued or more complex com conflict that requires other methods of dealing with it or maybe sure. resolved in different ways. And it seems to me that it's whether you did that intentionally or not, you are now part of that conversation with Loki's ring. Mm hmm. I did that intentionally. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. So on a, on a different level about the AIs, to kind of go back to the AI, I love this idea that you like partner with an AI mm -hmm. as like a, essentially like a, like a parent. Right. 
I'm really curious where this idea came from because I don't think I've ever seen like I've seen like robots that are like have an AI inside it and like you treat a robot like a bit like a baby because it's literally a baby and then it grows up or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this is like feels more intimate like you're Uh it's in you like you're you're where did this come from and and why why Stina? (laughs) Why Stina? Why? Um, I blame I blame Ted Chang. I read one of his short stories. Uh, I believe it's called the the lifespan of soft uh, software software objects. objects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In it, he talks about how the the AGIs characters are raising them in, but they're in like little robots or whatever. And like at the end, there's like a little essay about how AGI, if it were to exist, would need to learn. In much the same way, a child would need to learn, right? Because one of the one of my majors <laughs> that I went through was psychology, and perception is a very important. I had a whole semester on perception, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but the human brain actually can handle way more information. It handles a lot of information and sorts through all kinds of things and makes decisions based on limited portions of information, but there's so much information that we take in and so many decisions that we make that we don't even think about that they cannot make. I mean, their AI is narrow, okay, first of all. AI is just a thing, an algorithm that does one thing. It might sound, it might be, that one thing might be to construct sentences that sound like language, but it is not sentient or sapient. It's none of those things, right? It just does the one thing. It's what it's designed for. That's all it does. And artificial general intelligence would have to have the capability to do what our minds do, which is to take in lots and lots of information on all these different levels and then make decisions based on all of these things. But if you're training an AGI, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the human brain that is, we're unaware of it. It's just there. Like, for instance, uh, they're trying, they've been using AI to uh, make decisions on things like job applications, to sort through all of the job applications and then come up with the best possible candidates. Well, They've since discovered that these AIs are extremely racist and sexist. Surprise! Surprise! (laughs) Strangely, if you have someone who is white and male and they are designing a program, their perspectives will go into that program if there is no representation of other groups in it. And that's the biggest problem that American tech has right now. They have a problem with diversity. They don't have enough diversity in making the decisions on what these software programs do or anything like that. But they've also gone back and tried to make that not be a thing, right? So they don't even put, they they take out the gender modifier, right? Well, okay, it can't be about gender because we've taken that out of the equation. Data comes back and it is sexist and racist still. Because there are other factors that are in this stuff is hardwired into our society, 
racism is hardwired in it. It is a pattern that is there. And whatever AI you come up with, it will recognize it immediately because it's designed to recognize patterns and it will go along with that. So that's like a big deal. So I was thinking that after having read that story and trying to figure out how to train an AGI, it would be just like raising a child. So I just thought, and he, I think I want to say he mentioned something in the essay, like it would have to be something like deep level observation of how human beings make decisions. And I'm like, you don't get any deeper than the back of somebody's head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I came to that conclusion. And I thought it would be kind of cool as a metaphor, so to speak, of motherhood. Fascinating. What happens to AI as a consequence of this is that, of course, they can be just as well adjusted as anybody else, but they can also, also deal with very be. serious trauma. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so you actually have in this story, uh, in, it, you know, not, it's not a huge component of the story, but it is part of the important component of a, of a character's life where there is an AI who's essentially in like an AI mental health care facility getting help so that they aren't a danger to other people or themselves. I thought that was really interesting because it's like you thought about if an AI is going to be sentient and is going to have qualities that we would recognize as sentient as humans, they are naturally going to have occasionally the same kinds of issues we sometimes have in terms of our psychology. And uh -huh. I thought that was really fascinating and also a little terrifying because AIs can be quite powerful. <laughs> exactly. As well, you should be. And that's why there is a center that is designed to deal with. Because as a, she's, uh, she doesn't seem very, I mean, she's friendly. She's fun. She's got a sense of humor, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't seem like she'd be dangerous, right? But the, the problem is she doesn't understand consequences. And if you have an AGI that doesn't understand consequences, that's going to be some serious problems. That's seriously yeah. dangerous. I mean, really, I, you don't have to be a psychotic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you just don't as an AGI. You don't. Right. My mind is going, Dave, is not necessary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be dangerous. Yeah. They can be friendly and happy and and then, you know, watch you walk into vacuum and be perfectly fine with it because they don't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, normally we think of like AI as being scary thing, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, I was thinking of like Colossus, the Forbin project, which we've talked on the podcast where like they make an AI in order to like stop the Cold War. But then the two, the Russians and the Americans are making the AIs together and that the two AIs communicate with each other and go, wait a minute, these humans are going to destroy the themselves. Problem. So let's take all the weapons away from them and we'll be in charge now. <laughs> Which yeah. is it's just scary because <laughs> they have terrifying. all the nukes now. Yeah. But here you've kind of taken a more optimistic route of like, even when AI have issues in terms of their decision-making uh, or their emotional states, they can get help. Mm -hmm. But it's probably pretty unlikely because I can't imagine, I don't know, it would take a level and skill of... It would be a pretty massively, I mean, the pro reprogramming that would be quite the undertaking yeah. because the way it's designed is they, you parent, you pair with them for a few years, like five or six years, and then they are taken out of the drive out of your brain and they're putting it put into uh, whatever situation that they're designed to take over, right? Whether that's in a 
in a, in a starship or in a, a robot body or whatever, right? And from then on, they are self-programming. So all of the millions and millions and billions of layers of code that you'd have to sort through to, to figure out what was wrong, I just, that sounds pretty daunting in my opinion <laughs> but we could do it stita we could do it okay we could do it we could <laughs> do, do it, it. Come on, right. we could help we could help these ai that have trauma and need help come on we could do yeah. it why not <laughs> so okay so let's let's look at this uh, a, a different thing so you've got ring worlds or uh-huh. a ring world i should say rather than like yeah. dozens of ring worlds i love the ring world idea i love that your ring world's weird and is unusual and I'm uh-huh. really curious because obviously ring worlds are not a new concept in science fiction. No. But yours is like, it's a strange AF ring world uh-huh. in lots of ways, uh, in- including like, I-, I love this little detail you put in where you were describing the foliage as like spiraling around to get the sunlight in a uh-huh. certain way. Uh-huh. And I just thought that was a cool little detail. So I was I was curious where where in general you you kind of were pulling your your way of approaching the ring world from. What was your thinking process as you were saying I'm going to do an alien ring world? Well, I mean, as far as the plant life was concerned, the sun doesn't move, right? It just stays in the one position in the sky. Therefore, that means that a shadow will be a shadow always, a shadowy area. There will be no sunlight in that shadowy area ever. The sun doesn't move. So if the sun doesn't move, there's no reason for a plant to grow there and be in that spot. So all the plants have to be cooperative with one another, as they are in real life anyway. Um, They have to share the sunlight. So, you know, some plants grow on each other to get boosted up. They, They hold each other up so they can get the light or whatever. So that's that was my thinking on that one. I'm not sure that I thought as deeply on that as you probably would have to because I had a lot of other shit going on. But sure. that's where I, but that's where my head was with that is like there would not be any sunlight in these certain areas. So that would mean that the forest would look very strange. It would be yeah. catchy. There wouldn't be any ground cover. It would just be very strange. So that's what I was thinking on that front. And then uh, the mountains and all that stuff is just standard ring world stuff. But <laughs> I, I studied the classic ring world thing because I didn't want to go too far away from the physics of it because that had already been done. And I didn't want to uh, offend anybody who had their ring world takes. Right. Because because physics. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's fine. That's that's what I went with. And but at the same time, I was trying to think about it along those terms of, again, the sun doesn't move. So the plant life wouldn't look the same. And that would have certain effects. You wouldn't have there's no moon. So there's no tides. That's what I was trying to think. Those are the lines that I was trying to think on when I was designing that particular space. How successful I was is a whole nother thing, but <laughs> that's mean, where my head was at. <laughs> I really enjoyed the mystery of the the sort of alien culture behind the ring world. And then obviously we're learning some of that through the ring world itself, because that was my big question. As soon as you mentioned ring world, I was like, okay, where's this going, Stina? Because <laughs> it's a ring world. What did Stina do? And then, yeah, oh, apparently the aliens are, they're different. <laughs> Yeah, the aliens um, that designed the actual ring 
can you just imagine the amount of resources that you would have to have to just take an entire solar system and go, okay, we're just going to take all of your elements and all of your resources and put them in a big box over here. And then your sun's right there. And now we're just going to put it all in this big ring and like sprinkle it all around. What kind of power would somebody have to have to do that? It's just insane. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the level of technology that that particular set of aliens has is just unimaginable in comparison to everyone that's living in that universe. So they are the big scary. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, as they would be. There's almost an element of that of, I mean, I I don't know. I I don't want to suggest that the book is necessarily explicitly exploring this, but there's the... Was it like Clark's? So like Clark's third law, like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, yeah. And like I was thinking about, there's that line about how, there's a character of Mother. I won't ruin anything about Mother, but we learned something very important about Mother. And there's an element of Mother where I'm like, Mother's trying to explain this thing, but the way Mother's explaining it is like, I recognize you are humans, and any words I use are inadequate because your language can't account for this yet. And mm-hmm. it's almost to this point of like, I'm imagining if you and I went back to like the 1500s and throw out all the things about diseases and like, you know, that, but we were trying to explain a cell phone to like a French king. Like, He'd be looking at like, it's magic. It's a box. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, let me explain what a circuit board is. Like, they don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. No, because no, you'd have to start with electricity and they don't know what that means. Right. Yeah. It, it's interesting how even something as simple as language can be a barrier between, you know, the, the completely rational and reasonable and things beyond mere understanding. Oh, absolutely. The connection between language and the brain and forming certain concepts and stuff is like extremely fascinating, extremely fascinating. There was like some story on NPR that I read once upon a time that was about this uh, this man who was deaf and he didn't get an education. So he had no language skills effectively. And then he went through a program that taught him language skills as an adult. And they interviewed him afterwards. And he was like, and they were like, what is it like to exist without a language? And it was just a fascinating story, just a very fascinating story. And it was like, I can't explain it to you because there aren't any words for it. Yeah, that is wild. Yeah, it just it completely screwed with my brain. (laughs) It was just like, whoa. Yeah, he would have to explain things like visually. Uh But even then, there's an assumption like even though we work visually like you and I, Stina, we we operate very visually in the world. but. Uh Even still, like there's that would still be have to taught. You'd have to teach how he understands visual narrative to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Like, so even that doesn't fix your problem. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think hard about that kind of thing Uh, in the next book that I'm writing. There's going to be first contact and like all this, all this stuff. And I'm having to think about that stuff. Like, how do you communicate with somebody who is just so very different you not only don't have a language in common, you don't have every, everything is not, you know, everything's different, how they perceive and how they communicate. And, you know, yeah, it's just like a whole thing. I mean, the, 
And that's where the emissaries come in again. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Out of curiosity, have you watched Star Trek Discovery? Yes. I love Star Trek Discovery. Uh, all the way up to the through season four? I believe I have With seen the, it all the way through. Big, big aliens who like have pheromones and stuff. They, they have the giant black hole toilet that swallows worlds. Oh, man. Maybe I haven't seen the fourth season. <gasps> okay. Oh, I got to see this. This the, is going to be great. You should watch, based on what you just told me about uh-huh. the thing you're interested in for this book. I'm not suggesting it's going to influence it, but I think you would be really fascinated by what season four's big... I don't want to say big bad, because that's not right. Big mystery, big scary is. I swear I've and, seen it. I've, oh boy! I swear, I swear well, I've seen it. Maybe you blocked it out because it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. it being pretty intense. I'm a huge Trekkie. Me too. I'm, I mean, maybe not quite as much as you, but I'm I'm pretty up there. I remember watching one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek. It's from season four of, of Discovery, which mm-hmm. is precisely this thing we're talking about which is how they begin to figure out how to communicate effectively with these beings yeah and that to me i thought was i wanted more i was like you could have dumped half the rest of the season and just made this season more about this stuff because it was utterly fascinating but i'm gonna rewatch it because i i am not remembering it for whatever you reason. will get a kick out of it then <laughs> yeah yeah i need to i need to do that but i have to say strange new worlds is my favorite star trek Ah, I haven't watched that yet, so I will put that on my list to watch. I adore it because it has that hopeful edge to it. And it has that whole people being the best they can for people. I love that shit. I just love it. Ted Lasso is my jam. (laughs) (laughs) And I love Space Daddy. (laughs) I I will say that I I appreciate so much about much of Star Trek that it is unrelentingly hopeful that we can find solutions to many yeah. of our problems. Yeah. It had a huge effect on me clearly, because again, I want to be, I want to think positively. I want to be hopeful because again, you'll find solutions if you're hopeful to problems. Yeah. Whereas if you approach them as if you're just uh, reacting and trying to save you know, yourself and protect yourself and avoid problems because there can only be problems. You'll only ever see problems. You won't see yeah. the potential for good things. And I think it's so important to see the potential for good things. And this is related to your your book, by the way, <laughs> because yeah. you, you do this thing. Uh, you don't make life super easy on yourself when it comes to writing because you you love to push in terms of the perspectives that you explore and in uh-huh. all Persephone Station in this book, you've gone into exploring a very multi-ethnic, multicultural grouping of individuals. I think off podcast, you use the phrase, a space is for everyone. It is for everyone. <laughs> I was I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, not not necessarily like, why did you do it? Because I, I know why you did it, Stina. Like, <laughs> this is what interests you. You wanted to imagine a, a more interesting future where we're all present. But I'm, I'm curious about, like, what was the complexities of trying to imagine that and put it together and write all of that, especially like imagining different accents and all of these different things coming together is not a thing most people do. <laughs> well, I think most people should do it. 
that's just me. Um, some of it is I, I hired a uh, sensitivity reader to go okay. through and make sure that everything was according to plan. I, I feel like that's extremely important. Your your publisher doesn't pay for that. You pay for it. So and it's not it's not cheap. And I understand not having enough money to hire someone. But if you are going to do the job, you have to do this. You have to do this. If you're a white person, you you just have to if you're going to write characters who don't look like you. So I took Cla- workshop classes about writing the other and read books and do research. And I always look into the backgrounds that I select and make sure that everything is right. And then I make sure that the sensitivity reader has a specific background that matches up to that. So yeah. And the sensitivity reader that I had for this book was great. She was wonderful and so good. Her name's Georgina, but I can't remember her last name right now. <laughs> but she's in the acknowledgments she's really easy to work with and she's just marvelous but uh, a lot of it is it's just a matter of research and i love doing research uh, as if you couldn't tell no never never could tell that (laughs) Dina likes to do research (laughs) i just i I just love being curious about the world and how things work and why they work and how people are and it just fascinates me that that leads me to some like particulars because i know that um you even explored i, I don't know if the right phrase is like alternative relationship structures <laughs> i mm-hmm. guess would be that and i thought that was also really interesting because it it certainly has come up occasionally but it's usually presented as like exotic or like it's it's different look how different it is like oh yeah. science fiction we're gonna it's philip k dick he took acid and so now he wants to be different uh-huh. in this it came across as very yeah, that's just the thing that is over there. Yeah, they're doing that. We're moving on now. <laughs> like, Yeah, because a lot of this is it's about what if there was a world where being female or being LGBTQ plus, you know, none of those things were a big deal. What if that was just accepted? You are a human being. You're accepted. Boom. What is life going to be like in circumstances like that? And that's all I wanted to say was that this is a world where those problems aren't problems. Those are just how people are and it's accepted and it's okay. And there's nothing wrong with it. And again, space is for everyone and just existence is for everyone. Right. And I, I feel like if we can't imagine having a space where none of those things are an issue, then we can't have it in real life. So let's pretend like there's a space where those things aren't an issue and it's super far in the future. So why, why the fuck not? I mean, they've figured out freaking faster than light travel. If they can do that, they can figure out how to have a society where everybody's accepted. I mean, that's dead easy comparatively speaking. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's the world I wanted to kick ass in. (laughs) You're not wrong by comparison, dead easy, because technically FTL violates the known laws of physics. (laughs) Based on every method we have. <laughs> Although um, they are thinking that maybe it might be a possibility after all. Yeah. So I know there's talk about the Alcubierre, which is the, the version of a warp drive. Yeah. Yeah. And there's yep. some other weird stuff going on with quantum physics that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. So who knows? One day we're going to find out that like black holes are secretly just like all connected to each other and they just. <laughs> we're gonna open up a whole world where we're just meeting like 
aliens that are shaped like toasters and all kinds of stuff. And that's going to be our future. Yeah, some people are going to lose their shit. I cannot <laughs> wait. Yeah. If aliens are listening to this now, please come. <sighs> I would love to meet you. Like, I'd like to sit down. We can have some coffee or mm-hmm. another beverage if you're choosing. And we can just hang and, like, talk about existing. Peace, love, dove, and Peter Frampton. Ah, that'd be really good. <laughs> so you had mentioned you're working on something else. I imagine uh-huh. that's fairly far down the pipeline. But is there anything that you're working on next that you can talk about? Other than you're writing a thing. <laughs> I'm writing a thing. I think I can tell you what the... Well, no, I don't know if I can tell you anything right now. Because okay. everything's not defined in... Uh in legalese at this point okay so secret super important project from steena light yeah there you go (laughs) there's that but i but i can say there will be more science fiction from me and i'm enjoying it it's it's successful so i can definitely play in this particular sand pit for as long as i want at this point and that that makes me very very happy please please keep keep being in this sand pit i'm enjoying this Quite a Yay. lot. I'll I'll stay there as long as there's not a what is it Sorlock at the bottom of it. A Sarlacc. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No Sarlacc pit. Yeah. 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 None of those. I don't want any of those in my sand pits. <laughs> Me either. Yeah. yeah. So if if folks want to find you and your work, where would they go? Let's see, I have a Patreon, which you can actually find via cslight.com you can probably find your way around the internet to me via that that's my my website i'm also on one i'm at wandering shop on macedon and instagram is like one of my favorite places to be right now i've been snapping ridiculous pictures of toys and making up stories about things that's been pretty fun and that's all stina light right yeah that's just stina light l-e-i-c-h-t is my last name well, Stina, thank you so much for coming on. It, I don't know, just thank thank you. You're, you're just lovely, and I love you, Stina. Thank you for having me. I love you too, Sean. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. So for folks at home, you need to buy Loki's Ring immediately. Go buy it. Put all your monies in it. There's also an audiobook that you should also check out that is, I am told by Stina, exceptional, because Stina had a hand in choosing the narrator for it, and it's fantastic. So... Go get that. They're all there. This is from Saga Press, but you can find this book pretty much anywhere you buy books in both ebook and physical and audiobook. So buy it. Yeah. Or or Sean will stare at you, you know, with narrowed eyes. And that would be just the worst. It would be very much. Uh, So (laughs) for folks at home, um, if you want to find more about uh, Skiffing Fanny show, you can go to skiffingfanny.com, obviously, and get all our socials at our link tree, which is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash skiffyandfanty. We also have those listener suggestions at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. You can subscribe to the newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter, and we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty, and we like five-star reviews on iTunes, because that's legally one of the most important things you can do. Theoretically. Me, I'm on lots of places. I'm at SeanDuke.net. I stream on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 Central uh, PM at Alphabet Streams on Twitch. I'm at Patreon.com slash JoyFactory. And I'm on Linktree on various socials, including Wandering Shop as well. That's at Linktree slash Sean Duke. So that's all me. And so I now need to make it awkward. 
will mm-hmm. let you know that this entire session, Stina, I have had in the back of my head on a one terabyte SSD, an AI that I have now partnered <laughs> with. His name is Bob. Oh, okay. He only makes coffee. Congratulations, Bob, who makes coffee. Yeah. He's Congratulations to you both. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>